Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Heart valve disease. It's one of the most common heart problems, affecting one in eight people over the age of 75. Now, people with valve problems experience a lot of symptoms, shortness of breath, fatigue, lightheadedness, chest pain. They have a higher risk of problems with irregular heartbeats, stroke, and heart failure. Over the past 10 years, the treatment of these individuals has dramatically transformed. The FDA has approved minimally invasive surgery options that have made fixing these valves possible even for people in their 80s and 90s. Dr. Christian Spees is in the studio today. He's an interventional cardiologist and director of structural heart interventions at Queens Medical Center. We are going to be talking today about heart valves and what are the latest techniques that can allow a valve to be replaced or repaired no matter how old you are. As always, this is your show too. You can call us anytime, 941-3689, toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Spees, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much for having me. Now tell me a little bit about heart valves. You know, we know about plumbing issues, blockages in arteries. People might have heard about electrical issues, fibrillation, or funny heartbeats. But we're talking today about structural issues. Tell me a little bit about the structure of the heart. Yes. Um, you already said almost everything I was about to say. But okay. Well, we've got an hour, <laughs> so I hope no, you have more. No, that's fabulous. Yeah, I, okay. I, I always compare the heart to a house. So you have the foundation, the plumbing, and the electricity. Um, the plumbing is, if something's wrong with the plumbing, you may get clogged arteries and you get heart attacks, and we treat those. And then you may have electrical issues. That's where we have um, electrophysiologists who deal with the electrical issues of the heart. And then there's the foundation of the house or the foundation of the heart, which is made of the heart muscle itself and the heart valves. And the heart valves are the ones which a structural interventionist or um, a structuralist such as myself focuses on. There's four of them out there. And if you think about the heart as having a right side and a left side, the right side is the part which receives the blood from the body, and the left side receives the blood from the lungs and pushes it out to the body again. You have two heart valves on the right side and two heart valves on the left side. Now, which side gives people the most trouble? It's usually the left side because the left side is the side which needs to do the bulk of the work uh, as it uh, needs to provide blood flow to the entire body. So although we don't recommend it at any point, you could actually kind of live without right-sided heart valves. I mean, if you had to pick, you want to keep those on the left. They're much more important. They really are focused on bringing blood to your brain, to the rest of your heart, to your body, kidneys, etc. So let's talk about these guys on the left. There's one on the top and one on the bottom. Tell me a little more. Yes. So the one on top is usually the one which I refer to as the inflow valve. And then there is the one at the bottom, which is uh, the one I refer to as the outflow valve. The inflow valve is the mitral valve, um, which connects the upper chamber with the lower chamber, which is the main pumping um, chamber of the heart. And then the aortic valve connects the... Um, uh, left ventricular main pumping chamber with the aorta, which is the main artery of the body. Um, those um, leaflets are basically, those valves are basically made out of leaflets, 
which are nothing else but very thin structures, which open and close with each heartbeat. So now what are some of the problems that can happen to these valves? You know, a normal valve does its job, closes when it's supposed to, opens when it's supposed to, no problem. And for some folks, as they get older, troubles occur, even no matter what age. So what are some of the problems that can happen with the valves? Yeah. So obviously the job of the valve is to make sure that blood flows only in one direction forward. So those valves can become leaky. Um, for a variety of different reasons. Some patients are actually born with leaky valves, but for the most part, uh, it is an acquired condition to have a leaky valve. And then blood flows, in a way, backwards. Or it doesn't really flow backwards, but it backs up, and it cannot easily exit the heart, and it backs up as it would enter the heart, and then it backs up into the lungs, causing shortness of breath. Second, uh, what can happen to heart valves is they can become narrow. Um, and that is usually uh, either, again, uh, caused by a condition you're born with, but for the vast majority of patients, we see it is an acquired condition from uh, ultimately wear and tear. So heart valves can either be like a door that opens up and when it's supposed to close doesn't, or a door that doesn't open up enough. And so when you have a situation where, let's talk about the mitral valve first. So that's between the top part of the heart, the atria, and the bottom part, the ventricle. And your mitral valve can have a couple of things happen. But one of the things that we want to talk about today is when the door just opens and doesn't close, when we call it regurgitates, the mitral valve regurgitation, which sounds about as gross as it is (laughs) because blood's going in the wrong direction. Okay, so when your heart squeezes, instead of having that valve close, and keep blood from going back up to the top, this is the bottom part of your heart squeezing, unfortunately, some of it goes back up to the top. So why is this harmful for people? What sort of symptoms? You mentioned them a little bit earlier. How would people feel if they had mitral valve problems with regurgitation? Okay. Um, you bring up a couple of very good points there. So why, why does it cause problems in the first place? What is the reason for this? And that is basically that the heart function, the pump function, becomes ineffective. If you think about that, the, uh, usually 100% of your blood flow should go forward. If you have severe mitral regurgitation, 50 to 60% or maybe even more of your blood with each heartbeat flows backwards rather than forwards, which basically means that your entire body only gets about half of the regular blood flow it is supposed to get with each heartbeat, which generally results in, first of all, tiredness. Um, And tiredness is obviously very nonspecific. A lot of diseases can cause tiredness, but mitral regurgitation is one of them. And I commonly refer to this as patients feel like they're always in first or second gear. They never make it into third or fourth gear because they just don't have enough energy provided to them by the heart. So that's the lack of forward flow. Then you basically have the, the, the backward flow problems. And this is what I referred to earlier as the blood backing up as it enters the heart. And it backs up into the lungs. And then you have essentially something which some people refer to as congestion. Um, and this congestion is water in the lungs or in the capillaries of the lungs. And people feel this as shortness of breath. In its most subtle way, it is just a matter of getting a little bit winded when you walk longer distances or when you walk up two flights of stairs or uphill. Um, That's one end on the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is basically um, 
being so short of breath that you can't even have a normal conversation. And mitral valve disease, depending on or mitral valve regurgitation, depending on the severity and acuteness, can be anywhere between those two extremes. So it could kind of sneak up on you. I mean, in a lot of cases, people say, you know, it didn't start this bad, but then it sort of got worse over time. What sort of conditions make the mitral valve regurgitate? What what happens to this valve that it just stops working the way that it should? Yeah. You, you brought up yet another important point, and that is that heart valve disease a lot of times occurs and develops and deteriorates over the course of years, sometimes even decades, a lot of times, in fact, decades. And this makes it somewhat different than heart attacks, uh, which you know, can happen from one minute to the other. It's very unusual for heart valve disease to deteriorate within a couple of minutes. Now, your question was, what causes the valve to regurgitate? And um, you can technically separate this out into two big categories. First of all, the valve itself. The mitral valve itself, if you picture it, it consists of two leaflets, and they are very thin structures. And you actually, if you use your imagination, they look like two parachutes, which open and close, and then the edges touch each other, uh, leading to closure of the valve. And then this parachute uh, sails are basically hooked into with cords into the heart muscle itself. So you can have any problems with these cords or with the leaflets themselves, um, whether the cords or the leaflet tissue is um, uh, weakly designed in a way that it elongates and it can rupture. And this rupture of these cords or the elongation of these leaflets can then lead to leakiness. The second category is basically um, where the heart muscle itself is abnormal, where the heart is enlarged for whatever reason, and then the enlarged heart muscle drags on those cords, which in turn are connected to the valve, which then leads to the valve being propped open, uh, causing the leakiness, a.k.a. regurgitation. Where does mitral valve prolapse fit in? Mitral valve prolapse is part of the first described condition um, <coughs> where patients have a structurally abnormal heart valve leaflet, which is too long, elongated, or stretched out. And this stretch then leads to those two parachutes not meeting each other and to the regurgitation. Now, does everybody with mitral valve prolapse have a problem or just some people? No, luckily not, because mitral valve prolapse... Uh, is actually a very, very common condition um, if you diagnose it by echocardiography. Um, only a very small proportion of those patients with a prolapse valve actually develop manifest mitral regurgitation and clinical symptoms with it. Now, years ago, people used to get something called rheumatic fever. We don't have people get that very much, but that also could affect that mitral valve, right? Yes, and it can actually cause mitral regurgitation or mitral stenosis, which is narrowing of the mitral valve, or a combination of both. The concept there is that um, usually in childhood or adolescence, patients had um, um, angina or you know upper respiratory tract infections with strep. And as a consequence, decades later, the valves deform, stiffen, and the patients can develop uh, you know, rheumatic heart disease. And luckily, we don't see that as much anymore, but it used to be a big issue before <clears throat> before antibiotics came around. Now, talking about this mitral regurgitation, so we have this valve that isn't working correctly. It's letting blood go backwards. 
what sort of things can you do to help the valve that maybe 10 or 15 years ago weren't possible? We always refer to medical management um, when we don't consider surgery or um, any more uh, invasive options in the past. Now, the reality is there is really no medical management for heart valve disease. We can give patients uh, uh, furosemide or uh, diuretics, uh, also known as water pills, to make patient, patients lose some of the uh, fluid they have um, to make their breathing easier, but it really doesn't fix the problem. Um, in the old days, I would say until 10 years ago, um, the only option which was available to treat mitral regurgitation was open-heart surgery with either a mitral valve replacement or surgical mitral valve repair. Over the course of the last 10, 12 years now, um, there have been an increasing interest in repairing those valves with catheter-based technique where we do uh, small incisions in the groin area and puncture the vein, and through that puncture in the vein, we advance catheters inside the heart to actually repair the valve. One of those um, valve repair uh, devices has been approved by the FDA about a year and a half ago at this point. So this is great news. I mean, for those people who have had this serious mitral valve problem, either they never had surgery and just took medicine for symptoms, or they had a big open surgery. So in the last year and a half, definitely new since you know I left medical school and training, they've developed new techniques to really help people to have the surgery in a way that is not invasive. So if, you, if you're not healthy enough to undergo a big open heart procedure, now it doesn't have to be as, as invasive anymore, which means you would recover faster, you would do better. Have you seen this work for folks? Oh, it works beautifully. In selected patients, it's obviously not for everyone. And as you pointed out, um, in uh, low risk or what I may call average risk patients, open heart surgery to repair the valve is the standard of care and will remain the standard of care for the foreseeable period of time. So if you're healthy enough to undergo a surgery and you're young enough because you can replace the valve and it could last the rest of your life, you would want to prefer to do that. Correct. If you're young and healthy, can tolerate the surgery, better to do the open surgery, last longer. Correct. So who are the candidates for this type of catheter type of valve repair replacement? The candidates are patients who are considered higher risk for open-heart surgery, and this risk is basically defined by a variety of different things, most importantly, the patient's age. Um, the higher the patient's age, uh, the higher the risk um, at the time of surgery. Then how strong the heart is, if the pump function of the heart is normal, and other uh, diseases, other comorbidities, diabetes, if they have irregular heartbeats, prior strokes, and so on. And all those things you can technically put into a composite score. And if that score reaches a certain threshold, that is then defined as someone would be high risk for open-heart surgery, which means if you expose this person to the risk of surgery, it would convey a risk of the person not surviving a surgery of about 8%. And if it's at that threshold or above, that's then where catheter-based replacement uh, has a role. So can you think of any particular case, you know, not mentioning names, but just the general scenario where you've seen this type of catheter-based approach help somebody with their valve? You know, Particularly the mitral valve. Yeah, um, it, it is 
approved by the FDA for a year and a half. We have been doing this now for a little bit over half a year. And uh, every single patient um, who had this procedure did significantly better afterwards. And which patient always comes to my mind is the very first one we did because it's obviously, you know, a big deal to start a new procedure. Um, there's a lot of, you know, anxiety and uh, anticipation. And uh, it is it, it went beautifully, and uh, she's uh, had a dramatic response to it and still doing well today. So how old was this person, and what sort of medical symptoms did they have before it went away? Um, I think she is 82, 83 years old. That's pretty much the average age of patients who undergo this procedure. Um, symptoms were shortness of breath with exertion which basically resolved afterwards. Um, and the interesting part is patients with valvular heart disease adjust to their condition, and they don't commonly recognize how limited they actually were. And it's not until the repair of the, the, the valve problem that they realize how limited they actually were. And uh, she was one of them um, who came back afterwards to us and said, oh, my gosh, I feel so much better. I didn't realize how limited I was. Sure, if you just get used to it, your activity is, you know, the couch to the chair to the kitchen to the chair. You don't realize you could walk around the block. You could walk around the mall and, and actually make it to the other end and back without having fatigue and shortness of breath. So it sounds like that was a huge success story, and that was about half a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there are a lot of people out there with mitral valve disorders in this particular case the regurgitation, that are not being treated? That number is huge. And actually, the numbers uh, which have been derived by the American Heart Association and uh, other researchers are actually somewhat hard to believe, to be honest with you. But the, the, the statistics are as follows. In the United States, there is f over 4 million patients with moderate to severe or severe mitral regurgitation. Um, of which approximately half are symptomatic, which would be 2 million. Yet there's only about 30,000 mitral valve surgeries per year. So you can do the math. That's like... That's a lot. A lot of patients who basically um, do not get treated. Now, it's, 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 you know, it's not that I want to claim that there's you know, 1.9 million patients not being treated per year, um, but it basically comes down to the fact that um, there's about at least half of all patients who may be candidates for either surgical or catheter-based replacement or repair um, are not being treated or not being referred. So 1.97. If I do my math. Right? Yeah, correct. Okay. And so, like, Oahu plus another half of Oahu, all of those people potentially could have a better quality of life if they can be identified and then treated appropriately if they need to with now what doesn't have to be an invasive procedure. Correct. So if you do the math and distill it down to the population of Hawaii, it's about 20,000 people in Hawaii. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show, and we are talking today with Dr. Christian Spees, who is a heart valve expert. And we are talking about non-invasive ways to fix heart valves. When we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit more about the mitral valve. We're going to move on to the aortic valve, another valve that has some troubles that often are not treated 
because we used to think people were just a little too old to tolerate a procedure. But nowadays, the thinking has changed. We'll be right back, but don't forget, you can join our our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Stay with us. I'm Jeff White. I'm a certified financial planner. I've been a proud underwriter of HPR since 2005. HPR gives different points of view. I I like that a a lot, and there's no other source in town that I think provides that same kind of intellectual stimulation, and so I, I value that. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. On the next Humankind, a remarkable conversation with Mary Gillespie, a woman who most of her life has been both deaf and blind, but who speaks normally. Also, we examine the adult years of Helen Keller, the world's most famous deaf-blind person. Next time on Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Christian Spees. We're talking about valvular heart disease. One in eight people over the age of 75 have something wrong with their heart valves, and a lot of them don't know about it. And we're talking about how the treatment for heart valve disorders has transformed in the last few years and even in the last six months or so. Now, before the break, we were talking about the number of people in Hawaii who probably have mitral valve issues. As calculated by the American Heart Association and some other folks, and Dr. Spees, you said about Mm 20,000. And out of that, the number who would be candidates for the non-invasive procedure, that being based on age and other comorbidities, about 10% of that? I would say so, yeah. So about 2,000 people or so. Mm -hmm. That's a huge number of folks. Now, that's the mitral valve. And so... Tell me a little bit, when you actually go in to do this procedure, what exactly you're doing. We talked a little bit about putting the catheter in the vein, threading it up to the heart, but now you've got this valve in the way. How do you get it out of the way? What do you do? So uh, are we talking about the mitral valve or the aortic valve? We're still going to talk mitral. Okay, mitral valve. um, It's actually hard to believe, and I still to this day can't believe it, but you, you basically grasp the moving leaflets. So the way this works is you... Talk about a moving target. It, it is. Okay. And um, you, you do this procedure under general anesthesia. It takes about two to three hours. Um, but it's, like I said, only one puncture in the, in the, in the groin area, to puncture the vein. We go up to the right upper chamber. We need to do what is called a transeptal puncture, where we puncture from the right upper chamber into the left upper chamber. And that brings us right above the mitral valve. And the, the uh, uh, percutaneous mitral valve repair system, it's called the mitral clip. It is basically a system which is steerable in all sorts of different directions. And at its tip is a little clip. It's about the size of a dime. And it consists of a centerpiece and two arms, which you can open and close. So you position yourself right over the valve. Then you open up those arms. 
and then you go through the valve down into the main pumping chamber into the ventricle and you use mainly echocardiography ultrasound to see um, how those two parachute parts of the valve are moving with each heartbeat and then you slowly pull up these this clip with the opened arms until they literally fall into those arms and then you close them very quickly um, that you have both leaflets uh, caught at the same time. And then you, you close those two arms and you do uh, echocardiography, ultrasound again at the same time and you can see instantaneously whether the um, regurgitation, the leakiness has stopped or not. If you're unhappy, um, you can release the grasp. You open up your arms again and you reposition the clip wherever you want it. Sometimes you put in a second clip. After the procedure, you take the delivery system out. You leave the clip behind. It stays on the valve, obviously. And uh, you take everything out and patients wake up. They're up in a chair, usually four hours later, and they go home one to two days later. Amazing. I'm just trying to put it all in my head and picture it. Amazing. All right, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Robbie on the line from the Big Island. Robbie, welcome to the Body Show. Hi. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Um, I have a question. Um, I, I was curious about, I wanted to know if either of you knew of any application for cells in the repair of heart problems and in, in particular valve problems. Do any of you foresee this as a possible outcome of stem cell research or do you know if anyone is pursuing this area of stem cell research and um, I can uh, take my answer off the air if that works for you. Sure okay well it's an interesting question because I think stem cells are something that the medical community is sort of finding a lot of different areas where it could potentially be very helpful but there are a lot of other political and religious groups that have concerns about the use of stem cells and so, you know, I think we will always have a bit of a conundrum here in the United States talking about stem cells. But certainly, you know, as an application for doing something about a heart valve, well, I don't know, Dr. Christian. I mean, stem cells can do a lot. You could probably at some point, and we might get to the point where you could 3D print or grow your own valve. But I, I, don't, I don't know if we're there yet. No, we're not there yet. I, it is. It goes back to my internship 15 years ago when, when I actually did some stem cell research in valvular heart disease back then. And what was very on vogue at that time was to basically take a valve from an animal and eliminate all cells and then take the patient's own cells and seed it onto the valve, hoping that um, with, with the autologous cells on that valve that the longevity of the valves would be better. Um, it was done in animal models. It didn't turn out to work. And what you say, growing a valve from scratch with stem cells, I don't think we are anywhere near at this point to be capable of doing that. All right. Good question, Robbie. Yeah. Might be something that we do far off in the future. We're just not there just yet. So now let's move from the vitro mitral valve to that other valve, our other friend, the aortic valve. People hear a lot about aortic stenosis, aortic sclerosis, things that cause narrowing of the valve. Tell me about what happens to the aortic valve. What goes wrong with it, and why does that happen? 
Yeah, the aortic valve as the outlet valve of the heart is exposed constantly to the blood pressure of the human body, which is the high-pressure system. So uh, this valve, um, with the opening and closing basically 80 times a minute all the patient's life, can uh, lead to some degeneration, and that degeneration can then lead to some calcium deposition. Basically, some calcium has been put into the leaflets of the valve and into the wall of the aorta in that area, which is then called uh, aortic sclerosis, which is in itself not a problem, but it can progress, and it, that, that calcification can become so much that the, the leaflets of the valve stiffen, and that stiffening then leads to narrowing of the valve, uh, which is called stenosis. And that is the most common problem, what can happen with that valve, that is aortic stenosis, similar to the mitral regurgitation, somewhat of a problem of the elderly. So when we talk about this this narrowing of the valve, so it's kind of like you're trying to push something through an opening that's not big enough. So you're trying to the heart's trying to pump all this blood to get it to the rest of your body, but it can't get through this really narrowed space. So it can back up in the heart, but then some of the same symptoms you described with mitral regurgitation you're not getting blood flow to the rest of the body. So what sort of symptoms would somebody with a narrowed heart valve in the aortic position have? Yeah, the symptoms are almost the same as with mitral regurgitation and because the reason why there's not enough forward flow um, and why there is uh, backing up of blood are different, uh, stenosis versus regurgitation, um, yet the consequences are the same. Um, the uh, the cardiac output, the amount of blood the heart can eject with each heartbeat per minute is essentially fixed in patients with aortic stenosis, meaning there's only so much fluid, aka blood, it can go through this narrowed valve. Um, and if you increase your activity, you demand more blood flow, but the heart cannot deliver it. And as a consequence, um, blood backs up and causes shortness of breath. So you might find that you can walk progressively shorter distances, you can't go up the stairs as easily, you just feel like you don't have energy again. Correct. Now, when we have these sorts of troubles with the aortic valve, years ago when I was in training, depending on your age, if you were healthy enough, you could have this big open procedure, no matter what age you were, because there wasn't any other option. Now when we look, there's a lot of other options. What sort of things can be done for the aortic valve, similar to the mitral valve, particularly when we talk about this narrowing? So whether the sclerosis or the stenosis has occurred, when it gets to the point where it's affecting somebody's ability to get up and move around, what sort of techniques do you guys have that are now non-invasive that can help somebody to improve that? Yeah. So um, unlike the mitral valve regurgitation, repair of this valve is not feasible. Um, it has to be replaced. Generally speaking, even if it, the valve is severely narrowed, as long as patients don't feel anything, no shortness of breath, no limitation of any sort, it is safe to watch those valves. However, once symptoms occur in the setting of severe aortic stenosis, um, prognosis is poor, and this is when we need to do something. Um, in the 19- when you say poor, what do you mean? Like six months, a year? Uh, two to three years. Two to three years, okay. Um, 
Now, in the 1980s, uh, what was developed back then was balloon aortic valvuloplasty, where we went in with uh, catheters from the groin through the artery and inflated a big balloon inside this narrowed heart valve and deflated the balloon and took it out again. And um, it resulted in patients feeling better. Uh, the, the valve opening was better, not normal by no means, but better. Um, but it was then soon discovered that after latest one year, year and a half, the narrowing was as much as it was to begin with, and there was no improvement in mortality or longevity. So there was a lot of enthusiasm in the early, mid-'80s, which soon faded. And then um, in the early 2000s, specifically 2001, um, what happened for the first time back then was actually replacement of the aortic valve with catheters from the groin. Um, and that was a major breakthrough um, down in France. And um, the concept was basically to use uh, the leaflets of an existing heart valve. Um, they were sutured into a metal frame, also known as a stent. And this stent was squeezed around a deflated balloon. And then it was delivered um, from the groin through a small incision there um, across the narrowed valve. And then the balloon was inflated, similar to this valvuloplasty concept from the 1980s. However, since this stent-mounted valve was on that balloon, that valve was squeezed into the old valve, and the balloon was deflated. The new valve stayed behind. The balloon was removed, and the valve started working right then and there. And that was the, the beginning of TAVR, transcatheter aortic valve replacement. So it started back in 2001. 2001. I'm sure we've gotten better at it. <laughs> yes. Is that essentially what we do now? Have we refined this in any way? There have been a lot of refinements since then. Um, uh, initially, it was an incredibly bulky delivery system, very cumbersome. It has um, significantly improved the overall size. It's more miniaturized, um, which results in easier delivery, less tr running into trouble with narrowed leg arteries to deliver the system. Um, it has become a, a procedure which can actually now be done under conscious sedation um, rather than general anesthesia, which... Uh, so you're awake, you're breathing on your own, but you're you're awake, but you're asleep. Yeah, exactly. You're but comfortable, you, sure, but you breathe sure. on your own. And the benefit of doing that is obviously you eliminate the risks of general anesthesia, which in itself has, has some problems. Um, the... The technology has been refined throughout the years and is now in a subgroup of patients um, across the world, really standard of care. And at some point, we will stop counting, but I think at this point, it's 160, 170,000 implants worldwide since 2001. So there's a lot of experience been made over the years. Absolutely. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. Here in the studio, Dr. Christian Spees, we are talking about Mitral and aortic issues today, valvular heart disease. We're talking about aortic stenosis and sclerosis and what can be done about it. If you or somebody you love has had problems with their aortic valve, we'd love to hear from you, hear what experiences you've had. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free, Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. Now, tell me about one of your aortic valve success stories? Um, I also would probably bring up one of our earliest patients. Um, the 
uh, TAVR, so the transcatheter valve replacement, is restricted to patients who are deemed inoperable or high risk for open heart surgery. Because of what sort of thing would make them have that? Um, it, it, it is, first of all, this is the way it was studied. It compared surgery with, um, with, with the transcatheter version. And the risk factors for adverse events with surgery are the same in the aortic region as they are in the mitral valve area. So we look for pump function of the heart age and so on and so forth. And even though it is a less um, invasive therapy, it still is a therapy which carries risks. And some patients are too sick to even undergo this therapy. And there was one patient early on, I think in the first five or ten, uh, where we had a long discussion about amongst our team, and this is the beauty about this. This is all a team approach where we have surgeons, cardiologists, everyone debating, and we debated very, very hard whether or not we should, you know, do this uh, particular patient because we had concerns that he may not survive it. But not doing the procedure, uh, he probably wouldn't have survived either. So we we had like ten people in the room. We debated and we decided to go ahead and do it. And uh, since it was one of the earliest cases, again, there was a lot of anticipation and angst. And again, it worked. And uh, that was, gosh, almost three years ago now. Fabulous. um, And he's still doing well? He's still doing well. We actually do have annual celebrations for our TAVA program. And to the last one, we invited him to come, that everyone who's part of this from the operating room and so on actually sees the long-term results and consequences of this. And that's pretty great for for people to get a chance to see that's the guy and then see him living his life, being happy, enjoying his family, enjoying his loved ones. That's that's what we all go into medicine for. Yes, that's right. That that unique chance. All right, we've got Catherine on the line from Maui. Catherine, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks very much. What can we do for you today? Well, um, my husband had a valve replaced, or aortic valve. Um, in his late 30s, and this is in the late 90s. So I don't recall exactly why. Maybe it was a congenital situation. Okay. And I'm wondering what he, of course, he had the full open heart thing. And I'm wondering what might need to be done in the future about something like that, or things like that deteriorate and have to be replaced, or... Well, let me ask you a question. Is he on blood thinners? Yes, he's on morphine. Okay. So it sounds to me like he had a valve done that was what we call a mechanical valve. And yes, I think he has a mechanical valve. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he being at the age at which he had it done, that was the right thing to do. Because if you're healthy in your 30s and you can tolerate having a big open heart surgery, like Dr. Spee said earlier, that's the type of person who should have the bigger procedure. Now, Dr. Spees, what do you think? It sounds like mechanical valve on blood thinners, this should be good for life. Yes, um, as long as you maintain it. Uh, so, And the maintenance is the blood thinning. Gotcha. Um, it, it, it is critically important to, to reliably take your blood thinners through the rest of your life if you have a mechanical valve. Otherwise, there's a risk of blood clot forming on on that valve and that can have disastrous consequences. So but generally speaking those valves are designed to last all life. All right, Catherine. Keep them on the warfarin. They'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. What a great question. Yeah. Because you know, as you mentioned earlier, if you're healthy enough and young enough 
to have a full open heart procedure to have a valve that could last the rest of your life, that's the preferred option. Clearly, that's the okay. way to go. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Christian Spees. We're talking about what to do when you're not healthy enough and not young enough to do an open procedure for that heart valve. We're talking about minimally invasive heart valve repair and replacement. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On New Letters on the Air, playwright Christina Anderson discusses the importance of transformation from the first creative spark to the final curtain call. I'm very invested in creating the kind of theater that will hopefully ignite change in the real world. Christina Anderson reads from her play Good Goods and discusses Blacktop Sky on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Should employers get a tax credit when they allow their employees to telecommute? It's a question Senate Bill 696 looks to answer. Tomorrow on The Conversation, we'll talk with the head of the Society for Human Resource Management, Hawaii Chapter, about the benefits and drawbacks. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Christian Spees. We're talking today about minimally invasive valvular surgery and how this is really a lifesaver for people who just so happen to have valve problems as they get older, maybe just might not be healthy enough to undergo a full open procedure. Before the break, we were talking about what sort of conditions can happen to this aortic valve and how so far there have been about 160,000 minimally invasive procedures done worldwide in the last 14 years something we definitely need to have available here in the islands, and luckily we do. If you've got a question or a concern, you can join us at 941-3689. Toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now we've got Serena from Honolulu on the line. Serena, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. What can we do for you? Well, I have a question for Dr. Spees. Um, So I heard earlier... um, Kathleen, that you mentioned that we're doing uh, procedures on older patients, like in their 80s and 90 years old. And so I'd like to know, like, how old has Dr. Spees um, performed the procedure on, like, the patient? How old is has Good question. Gone? How old is the oldest? That's an excellent question. We had two 96-year-olds. These were the, wow. the two oldest. Oh. And um, uh, case selection is of paramount importance. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I would say, 96-year-olds who probably won't be candidates, but you know, the kind of 96-year-old who lives on his or her own and does their own grocery shopping and uh, still is in the middle of life, um, these are reasonable uh, procedures to consider. So age itself is not a reason not to consider this. I see. And I guess, um, like, how do we decide on, you know, the life expectancy of a 90-plus-year-old? Like, what is involved in in considering that at all? 
Yeah. So uh, there's a scientific answer and there's uh, a normal answer. So the scientific answer is that basically the, the, the longevity benefit, the mortality benefit of TAVR transcatheterotic valve replacement pans out after a year and a half. So it is very much likely that um, if, if you live for two years more that you will have a mortality benefit. That doesn't tell you much, to be honest with you. Um, I always say in this age group, um, quality of life is significantly more important than quantity of life. And it's very hard to predict uh, if we fix a heart valve, you know, what the other reasons of as someone's 96-year-old demise may be. So um, the patient has to be very limited by his or her heart valve disease that you can say, you know what, if we fix this, um, you will feel better for whatever much time is left there for you. But then maybe just only be limited by their heart valve disease. Correct. We wouldn't necessarily do this for somebody who has severe lung disease or immobilized because they have bad arthritis, they can't get up and get around. So it sounds like it would have to be a pretty darn healthy 96-year-old whose only problem is their heart valve that you could fix and get them back to doing activities. It wouldn't necessarily be a bed-bound person who really could not get up and get around to do stuff. No, you, 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 this is all correct, and this is part of the reason why rather than just an interventional cardiologist and cardiac surgeon evaluating the patient, we, we are a team of physicians who do this, and part of our team are geriatricians, basically internists for the elderly, and they evaluate the patient as well, and we then debate of whether or not it is the right thing for this individual to undergo or to, for us to offer this procedure. Um, so of all 95-year-olds, the vast majority will probably say no, but there is a select group of individuals where it is worthwhile considering these kind of procedures for sure. And Dr. C, one last question. Sure. How much does it cost to do a procedure like this? Like, what's the cost involved? It is standard of care if you follow the the guidelines and uh, uh, Medicare rules and so on and so forth. So it's basically covered by insurance carriers, both private as well as Medicare. Okay, well, thank you very much. Excellent question, Serena. Excellent. Because sometimes we have to take a look and say, is this particular procedure something that anybody who's 96 could have? And certainly there's a select few who would be good candidates. But excellent questions. And I think we all have to look at that as healthcare costs rise. What can we do? We've got another caller. We've got Claire on the line from the Big Island. Claire, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for um, calling. I, I have a question. I know you're talking about um, the uh, aortic valve and the um, mitral valve. Um, when my daughter was born, she had a murmur, and they diagnosed it with as a pulmonic ejection click. And um, we had taken her in every four years to get an echocardiogram and EKG. She's never had any symptoms, um, and now she's 23 years old. And her last echo was done a few years ago, showed the beginnings of some pulmonary stenosis. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've never really got, I mean, is there this type of procedure that you're talking about? In in some of my research, I've noted that the pulmonary valve isn't usually replaced or, you know, a lot of times I've been just told this is a benign condition and she may grow out of it, although she hasn't. Yeah. But... um, 
Now, what, what you're referring to is basically a congenital pulmonic stenosis condition, which is a, a, a narrowing at this point probably of one of the right-sided heart valves, the pulmonic valve. Um, there are actually dedicated percutaneous or catheter-based valves to replace the pulmonic valve um, for other conditions. So that is a possibility. However, from what you describe, um, that is um, a condition which, which you know, can be followed uh, uh, with either MRI or echocardiography. And once the valve is, if, if it reaches that point that it becomes so narrow, um, a lot of times what I described earlier, valvuloplasty works very well in the pulmonic position for this specific valve. So um, okay. that Great. is something, yeah. you know, follow up and uh, uh, eventually, if needed, this valvuloplasty thing may be enough. So that would be something that you talked about earlier with the aortic valve yeah. in the 1980s, mm-hmm. but now it can still be done with this pulmonic valve. The funny thing is that the valvuloplasty in the pulmonic position uh, works fabulously. So it's a non-invasive, very successful. Yes. Does a great job. All right. Oh, well, Claire, right. it sounds Thanks like there's, much. yeah, there's definitely potential if there's a problem. A non-invasive procedure can fix it. Good to know. All right, no, we've thank got... You. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much for calling us. We've got time for another caller. We've got Rob on the line from Kailua. Rob, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I, I got a case that my mother presented uh, about two or three years ago. She's At the time, she was 92, in overall excellent health for 92, sharp as a tack, and still is. She had a problem with the aortic, um, not the valve so much, but just the aorta. And it was described to me as one or more of the layers that the valve, the uh, artery is made from, ruptured, allowing blood flow behind it, which created kind of a bubble or an aneurysm kind of effect. And she decided, okay, I don't want any major heart surgery. And the doctor said, I'm not even sure we can repair that. So, and they said, this is this is kind of a rare thing we're, we're looking at here. And they said, you know, you're healthy. You just to go home and uh, live a nice, healthy life as long as you can. And what happened, Rob? Well, she's still living a nice, healthy, happy life. And they That's said, awesome. you know, this when the time comes, you may be gone like turning a switch off, and you may live 10 years. So they didn't really give her a, a we can do this or not. But And it took them a while to figure out what exactly happened. And I'm not even sure all the doctors agreed that was the problem. But they didn't treat it, except I'm not even sure if she's on a blood thinner or any kind of medication that would help that problem because it's more of a mechanical thing like a faulty valve than a than anything else well rob first of all i hope you have your mom's genetics because if she's doing (laughs) that awesome in her 90s good for her you know we talked earlier uh serena wanted to know what's the oldest patient that dr spees has ever done this surgery on and he said 96 and i thought wow i want to be 96 and be that healthy someday so i hope i hope You got your mom's health. But it's interesting because you're describing, like you mentioned, like this unusual aneurysm condition. And and it's it's something that, you know, it's difficult to know what's going to happen in the future for people. And so when you're 92, undergoing a big open heart surgery is kind of risky because you've got general anesthesia, you've got recovery, you've got all these other issues. 
Probably not something that the doctors wanted to put her through, particularly not if she's sitting there saying, doctors, I feel fine. I look great. What's your problem? I feel okay. You know, so we don't necessarily know how to predict the future, but we also don't want to cause harm. And going in to repair something that we're not even certain we can repair for somebody who feels good, that's kind of a risk. I'm glad that they told your mom, listen, go live your life, be happy. And Dr. Spees, under certain circumstances, now this is not valvular, this is sort of the aorta itself, but you would say the same thing to somebody who maybe didn't necessarily need to have a procedure. Yeah, I I cannot overemphasize how important symptoms in this age group are. So uh, if you have a 92-year-old asymptomatic patient with any condition, I would I would think at least five times before I recommend any form of surgery or procedure um, because the question is always what do I what do I try to accomplish with doing a- any form of procedure you know if the patient has no symptoms I cannot make her feel better so sure and and you know can I make her live longer if I expose her to a risk of a major open surgery probably not so, so then why would you do it I, exactly I, I think you know this was a very wise wise decision back then all right, we've got one last caller. We've got Joe from the Big Island. Joe, welcome to the Body Show. Yes, how are you? Uh, ma'am, I have a uh, doctor, I'm sorry. I have a question for the doctor. Uh, when I was 32 years old, I am now 62, yeah? Uh, the doctor in Honaka Health Center where I go to, I live in Pawilo, about seven miles away, uh, the doctor there had discovered a heart murmur in me, and I was then sent to uh, uh, a doctor by the name of Dr. Lim in uh, Hilo and uh, put on a duper echo machine. Uh, at that time, I, he, he found the murmur. It was very slight. He laughed about it, and he said, that's not a problem. However, uh, the problem that was there was probably linked to a valve that was a slightly different, and I was born with it very differently, in which case, uh, instead of a three-way flap in a, a valve, I assume it's the aorta, my valve has only two, two flaps. So it's going to produce a murmur or a noise, yeah? Uh, it never really bothered me at all. I'm a runner. I love to run. Uh, I'm the guy that would run up and down Whitefield Valley mm-hmm. Hill, tw- uh, up and down. Uh, and take me like 20 minutes, if you ever know where Whitefield Valley is. I, I do. live right over here in this area. So that's not a problem. Uh, and then also, uh, back in 2007, uh, I had a stroke. Uh, September, I had a stroke, in which case my right side of my body is paralyzed almost 100%, not exactly, uh, and I'm still trying to get over it, yeah? Uh, but I was, uh, at the time of my hospitalization in 207, uh, the 9th, uh, or 9th to the 17th, around that area, yeah, I was uh, told that I needed a pacemaker. Okay. And I'm wondering, you know, would that be a major problem for me as a runner in the future, or will it be okay? Uh, I need to know. Now, I, I hope that you had a follow-up echocardiogram and not only had one 30 years ago, that you had one in 2007. Uh, 
no, I did. I, I didn't have anything like okay. that, yeah. So what, what you describe is, is a bicuspid aortic valve, which is the most common uh, uh, congenital abnormality of the heart, which means, like you described, rather than three cusps, you have two cusps uh, of the valve. And a lot of times that can lead to premature wear and tear uh, and aortic stenosis. And if you had a murmur and you're diagnosed with this in your you know 30 years ago, um, it would be advisable to get another echocardiogram at this point and see where you are because, again, this, this aortic stenosis does not happen overnight, but it can certainly happen over 30 years. So before I would can anything about you know ability to run and so on and so forth, the most important thing would probably be to get another echocardiogram at this point. Yeah. Well, over the years, yeah, I do have uh, uh, electrocardiograms, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it's not uh, in detail, so to speak, yeah, yeah. not really uh, specific for the reason of, of what I have, yeah, so, uh, you know, but anyway, I, I am concerned about the... Uh, the uh, pacemaker, you know, would yep. that have anything to do or with it, with my heart being, you know, kind of, you know, the way it is or what? Yeah, I mean, pacemaker um, is 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 electrical problem, as I mentioned earlier. And pacemakers, a lot of, there's millions of patients with pacemakers who still can run and live a completely normal life. So a pacemaker in itself will not be in your way to live a normal life. All right, Joe, I hope that helps you out. You got an expert opinion. Time to get a little bit more information about your heart. And if you did need to have that pacemaker, it shouldn't stop you from doing all the things that you love and enjoy. Uh, Dr. Spees, we've learned a lot. Boy, in the last just 10 years, heart valve treatment has completely transformed from what I remember when I studied medicine to these non-invasive procedures that are fantastic. So for the right person, it's the right test to do. Now, there's an upcoming event that you're going to be talking about heart valves. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, you caught me a little bit off guard. I don't even know the date right now. but um, I Later will, this month. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I will. Uh, there's at the Queen's Conference Center um, towards the end of February, and I can give I you. I think it's the 23rd. Yeah, that well may be. At 5.30 on the 23rd of February, I will. Um, there will be. Uh, speaking of health lecture uh, by me, um, talking about uh, valvular heart disease, uh, mitral regurgitation, and aortic stenosis and its treatment. And I actually think we will have two patients there as well who share with their, their experiences. Fabulous. Let me just correct that. That's going to be on February 25th. And if you want to know more about it, you can take a look at queens.org or call 691-7117. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk some more about health, Monday on The Body Show. We'll see you then. <music>